It is said that President Lincoln had an unusual dream. Ward Hill Lamont was a close friend of Lincoln's and sometimes bodyguard to the president. Lamont was instrumental in helping Lincoln secure the Republican nomination for president. And then after his election, Lincoln appointed Lamont the U.S. Marshal of the District of Columbia, a position he held until he resigned some months after Lincoln's death. Lamont authored a book that was published after his own death called Recollections of Abraham Lincoln. To be both technical and transparent, Lamont didn't actually write that book himself. His daughter, Dorothy Lamont, compiled different papers and different letters that her father had written, and then she edited them herself. That book included a dream, a dream Lincoln supposedly had. Some historians have questioned the authenticity of that account. Um, I find historians always question the authenticity of everything, uh, even if there's no evidence to question something. Um, but some have questioned, but we do have uh, unrefutable uh, documented historical evidence substantiating that Mr. Lincoln did have dreams often, and he was extremely interested in the meaning of those dreams. So this account is more than possible. It is probable and deserves to be recounted. It is said one afternoon, Mrs. Lincoln noticed that the president was in something of a depressed mood. He described a disturbing dream he had had 10 days earlier that was still troubling him. Lamont was present, as was another unnamed person. Lamont said, I give it as nearly in his own words as I can from notes I made immediately after its recital. And so this is Mr. Lamont's account of that conversation with the president. The president said, quote, About ten days ago, I retired very late. I'd been waiting up for important dispatches from the front, meaning the front lines of battle, the Civil War. I could not have been in bed long when I fell into a slumber, for I was very weary. I soon began to dream. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs, as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. There the silence was broken by the same pitiful sobbing, but the mourners were invisible. I went from room to room, and no living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. I saw light in all the rooms. Every object was familiar to me, but where were all the people who were grieving as if their hearts would break? I was puzzled and alarmed. What could be the meaning of all this? Determined to find the cause of a state of things, so mysterious and so shocking, I kept on until I arrived at the east room which I entered. There I met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque. The catafalque, if that word is unfamiliar, is a box or platform that supports a coffin or casket. Before me was a catafalque on which rested a corpse 
wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people gazing mournfully upon the corpse whose face was covered as others were weeping pitifully. Who was dead in the White House? I demanded of one of the soldiers. The president was his answer. He was killed by an assassin. Then came a loud burst of grief from the crowd, which woke me from my dream. I slept no more that night, and although it was only a dream, I have been strangely annoyed by it ever since. It was just days after that conversation recounting that dream that Mr. Lincoln was sitting in his box at Ford's Theater when John Wilkes Booth assassinated the 16th president of the United States. And the morning after his death was on a scale unlike this nation had ever witnessed. Lincoln's coffin was put onto a train and traveled to 17 different funeral services. This is that train. We aren't sure which car the coffin was in, but it was there. More people walked past the president's casket than ever saw him alive during his campaigns and during his time as president. I might add that catafalque first used to hold Lincoln's casket in 1865 has been used for all of those that have laid in state in the Capitol Rotunda since Lincoln's death. The famous evangelist Dr. Billy Graham's casket laid on that same catafalque in the Rotunda on February 28, 2018. Question, was Mr. Lincoln's dream prophetic? Was that dream a premonition of his own death? No one knows. Daniel chapter 4, though, describes a disturbing dream Nebuchadnezzar had, and his dream was prophetic. Remember, Babylonian was the greatest human empire to that date, and Nebuchadnezzar ruled that empire. He invaded Jerusalem in 605 B.C. This is some 26 centuries ago. He recruited some of the best and brightest Jewish teenagers to bring to Babylonia to be trained to serve him in strategic positions throughout the empire. Historians estimate there were some 75 Jewish exiles altogether, but we only know about four of them. Those four are Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All four men over a period of time, had been promoted to high-profile government positions, and Daniel had been promoted above them all. Let's establish the timeline. There are some three decades between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Three decades between those chapters. Daniel was now in his mid-50s, and Nebuchadnezzar was about 70. Daniel chapter 4 is autobiographical autobiographical. That means this section contains words from Nebuchadnezzar himself. Notice he made a public announcement. Daniel 4 verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
Verse 2, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Verse 3, How great are His signs, and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. These words we have just read are from Nebuchadnezzar himself. And some believe that this is the biographical account of Nebuchadnezzar's actual conversion from pagan polytheism to Jewish monotheism. Some, not me, some though, see this text as describing Nebuchadnezzar's conversion from false gods to the one true God, and in doing that experiencing salvation. This is the logic some people have used to arrive at that conclusion. In chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to eat the king's diet and instead requested to eat a Jewish kosher diet. And after doing that, God enabled those four men to outperform the other Jewish exiles. Seeing that, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. In chapter 2, God enabled Daniel to solve Nebuchadnezzar's incredible dream that no one else could tell him about and no one else could interpret. And once more, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. In chapter 3, remember, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to worship this gigantic image Nebuchadnezzar had made. The three men, because of that defiance, were thrown into a hyper-heated furnace. But God rescued them. And Nebuchadnezzar was more than impressed. So Nebuchadnezzar has seen God in full operation, up close and personal, as God manifested himself through these four Jewish exiles. So some believe that these miraculous performances convinced Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his paganism and turn to the Jewish God Yahweh. I disagree. I don't think that happened here. I do believe Nebuchadnezzar was converted. I just don't believe that conversion happened at this point in time. I believe that conclusion is premature. I believe Nebuchadnezzar is converted at the end of chapter 4, not at the beginning of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, though, respected Daniel's God, but he still had his own God, probably Marduk, we mentioned him before, the head of all the Babylonian gods. So I believe he was still an unconverted man at this time. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Remember, this happens at a time where Nebuchadnezzar ruled the most powerful human empire to that date, Babylonian. He was a great warrior and also a great builder. Archaeologists are still searching through the extensive ruins of ancient Babylonia. On the surface, it seemed Nebuchadnezzar was in control. On the surface, it seemed he was in complete command of that empire. Things were good. And then something happened. Something dramatic happened. This was a divine interruption. Nebuchadnezzar was about to have a shocking reality check. 
Someone said there are two certainties in the human experience besides death and taxes that are inevitable. And those certainties are, one, there is a God, and two, we aren't Him. Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn those lessons through the means of this terrible dream. Verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Nebuchadnezzar is a dreamer. And notice he had another dream. This dream, though, was more nightmarish. He was frightened and troubled. Notice verse 6. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 7. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream. See, he remembers this dream. The earlier dream in chapter 2 he did not remember. And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Once, once more, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar sent for all the supposed wise men in his court. He told them this dream, but none of them, none of them could interpret that dream. So nothing has changed from the second chapter. None of them could interpret his first dream, and none of them could interpret this second dream. Those men were useless to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar brought in the proven dream solver, Daniel, or his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Verse 8, But at last, at last, Daniel came before me. It's interesting that Daniel timed his approach to Nebuchadnezzar. He waited until after the court's council had been unable to help him. Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. My God, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's God. He's still a pagan. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, verse 9, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. This word magician here is probably better understood as a reference to a scholar. As Daniel didn't practice the ancient magical arts. So Daniel was considered the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know, this is Nebuchadnezzar, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. So, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar had total confidence in Daniel's abilities to interpret this dream. He had seen him in operation before. It seems Nebuchadnezzar respected Daniel and respected the God Daniel served, and that respect would contribute to his ultimate salvation. Nebuchadnezzar had seen God in Daniel, and it ultimately created in him a desire to have what Daniel had. Daniel spoke about God, and he also manifested God in his attitude and actions, and that impacted Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 10, these were the visions of my head while on my bed meaning this was that dream he had that frightened him. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Verse 11, the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached 
to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Verse 12, its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, the birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh fed from it. Notice as we're reading this, this tree in this dream is described as an it. It and its. Nebuchadnezzar remembered this particular dream. He had dreamed about an enormous tree. This tree had such large and strong branches that birds nestled in its limbs and animals found shade underneath it. This was also a serious fruit-producing tree. Nebuchadnezzar continued, verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. Verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. According to this dream, all of a sudden, someone descended from heaven. In this text, he's called a watcher. And that was probably a reference to an angel. So this angel descends from heaven and had this tree cut down. Its branches were stripped of its leaves, its fruit was scattered, and the birds and animals left. But he left behind something. Verse 15, Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him, notice, notice the language has changed. The tree was described as an it, and now in verse 15, it is described as a him. This is a personality. Let him gaze with the beast on the grass of the earth. There was still the stump of the tree after the tree had been cut down. Um, the stump and all its roots had been left intact. The stump was bound with a band of iron and bronze wrapped around it that preserved the tree from continued devastation. And that meant it was still possible that this tree could be restored and rejuvenated at some point. And that factors into this dream's interpretation. Verse 16, let his heart, let his heart, not its heart, his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of the beast and let seven times pass over him. Notice that in the beginning part of this dream, this tree is identified as an it, an impersonal object. But near the end of this dream, this tree is now identified as a him. It has a personality. That's because this tree in this dream represents Nebuchadnezzar himself. Don't miss that. This tree in this nightmarish dream he had represents Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living, meaning in order that those that are alive to hear about this dream, may know that the most high 
the Most High is God, rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men. God rules over men. Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this the hard way. God superintends over all human rulers. God reigns over all empires and nations because God is sovereign, meaning God is in absolute control. Verse 18, this dream, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, again, these are his words, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, you, Daniel, I just shared this dream. Now you declare its interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able. Why? For the spirit of the holy God is in you. This was a tough assignment. Nebuchadnezzar had shared this dream. And now he insists. He insists that Daniel tell him what that dream meant. And he had absolute confidence in Daniel's ability to do that because Nebuchadnezzar agreed that the Spirit of God was in him. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke. I mean, Daniel heard these instructions and command from the king to interpret this dream, and I'm sure he stood there. He didn't respond, but he was visibly disturbed. It was apparent. And so the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Daniel wasn't troubled because he didn't understand the meaning to this dream. No, Daniel was troubled. He was upset because he did understand the meaning to this dream. And that bothered him. Daniel, God had revealed to Daniel in an instant the interpretation of this dream. And Daniel was disturbed because he understood what that dream would predicted that would happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And it wasn't good. It was very bad. He wanted to give Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation that would please him. But he couldn't do that. He was upset and he was saddened about what he was going to have to disclose to Nebuchadnezzar. The king tried to console him and tell him not to be upset about the dream or its interpretation, but that couldn't be helped because Daniel already knew too much. Verse 19 continues, Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel said... Essentially, he wished this dream applied to Nebuchadnezzar's enemies and not to him. I believe Daniel had gotten close to Nebuchadnezzar. He cared about him, and he wanted him to believe in the true God. So he didn't want to tell him what he knew he had to tell him. That hesitation should have communicated to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel did care about him. This dream prophesied judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. And notice, Daniel found it difficult to communicate that judgment. He didn't want to have to tell him. 
Daniel understood that sometimes the truth hurts, but he couldn't remain silent. Mark Twain said, the truth hurts, but silence kills. And in this case, it would have. So Daniel hesitated at first. He's troubled. He has to do this. And then he explained to Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of this dream. Verse 20, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth. Verse 21, whose leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt in, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. Verse 22, it, it, meaning this enormous tree from this dream, it is you, O king. This tree is you, O king who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. The tree in this dream represented Nebuchadnezzar himself and represented all the greatness Nebuchadnezzar had achieved through the Babylonian Empire. Verse 23, And inasmuch, Daniel continued, as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, this is an angel, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. That seven times represented seven years. 84 months. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. Daniel is wrapping it up. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the king. Verse 25. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling, meaning your residence, shall be with the beast of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. Verse 26, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, don't miss this, Your kingdom shall be assured to you. Meaning his kingdom, after 84 months, would be restored and reestablished. After, after you come to know that heaven, and heaven is a synonym for God himself. Heaven, God, rules. This message to Nebuchadnezzar from this dream was that he would be removed from his throne. He would no longer be the head of that massive empire. He would be removed, dethroned, because he would incur a massive mental disorder where he would imagine himself to be some sort of a beast in the field similar to an ox. He would exist in that mentally confused state for seven years until he learned the critical lesson that it is God that rules over all, and it is God that sets up rulers, and it is God that takes down human rulers. 
And that in and of ourselves, we have no position and no power. But this particular prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled for another 12 months. Verse 27. Daniel has shared the interpretation to this dream. The dream essentially pronounced judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 27, Therefore, Daniel said, Therefore, O king, meaning because of this prophetical dream, let my advice be acceptable to you. He said, I hope you'll listen to me. Please listen to me. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities, sins, by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps, just maybe, there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel, after sharing this interpretation, pronouncing judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, tried to convince Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Meaning he tried to convince him to change his mind about his egotism, about his sins, and he tried to convince him to turn from his sins and to put his faith in the one and true God of Judaism. And if he would do that, then God might, might respond to that repentance and be merciful and spare him this judgment. But Nebuchadnezzar was stubborn. I might add, stupid. Stubborn and stupid and wouldn't budge. Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent. Nebuchadnezzar sidestepped this matter. If he had repented, as Daniel instructed him to, if he had repented, then this predictable judgment on him might not have happened. But he didn't repent. So judgment did come, as we are going to see next time. Understand, though, that this dream and all that was predicted in that dream constituted a serious, serious divine interruption. Understand three things about divine interruptions. One, God sometimes uses interruptions to get our attention. God sometimes uses interruptions to get our attention. Remember from earlier on, we said God is God and we are not, so God doesn't need our permission to interrupt our schedules in order to get our attention. Understand God doesn't want to be ignored. And how often is He ignored? So here are seven things, there are more. There are seven things God can use to get our attention. One is restlessness restlessness. Sometimes God causes us serious uneasiness and restlessness until He gets our attention. We can't sit still. Our mind is going crazy. We can't sleep, can't concentrate, can't focus. We're a complete mess until we acknowledge God wants our attention. Second is counsel from someone else. Counsel from someone else. 1 Samuel 3, God spoke through Samuel to get a message to the high priest Eli. God spoke through Samuel to tell Eli what he wanted him to hear. God can use a message from a friend or a foe to communicate to us. Someone said, The trouble with most people is that we would rather be ruined through praise 
than saved through criticism. God has gotten my attention much, much more often through a critic than through people that praise and commend me. Number three, unusual blessings. God might share unusual blessings in order to get our attention. 1 Kings 17, God used a raven in Jewish culture, an unclean bird. God used a raven to feed the prophet Elijah so he wouldn't starve. That was most unusual. And God still shares unusual blessings. I believe the word miracle is most often overused and misappropriated. Most so-called miracles aren't actual miracles. We are not a part of the signs, wonders, and miracles movement. That being said, though, I do believe that God is still God, and I do believe that the miraculous still happens. I have a first cousin, my father's oldest brother's son. Uh, His name is Butch. Um, He resides just north of Dallas. He is older than I am. He is semi-retired, but he is a serious cowboy person. He raises cattle, raises horses. Um, He attends a, and this is common in Texas, he attends a cowboy church. I'm serious. The whole motif, cowboy, cowboy, cowboy. Um, His grandson, age 17, is a world champion calf roper. His children, his children's mates, and his grandchildren are all committed Christians. He called me about 10 days ago to tell me about something that just happened to another uh, teenage grandson named Austin. Um, He told me, I found it hard to believe, uh, but I did accept it. And this Friday, I just called him back to substantiate that I didn't mishear what had happened, and it didn't. This uh, teenager, age 17, has been legally blind in his left eye since childhood, unable to see anything out of that eye. Uh, He and his siblings, two Sundays ago, were sitting in church, and during the sermon, during the sermon, his left eye started to hurt. It was painful. In fact, he started to cry. He turned to his mother to tell her she was in pain. She was sitting next to him. She's a nurse, so she wanted to investigate the problem. So she opened his eyelid, his left eye, eyelids, and as she opened them, he said, Mom, I can see you. Now remember, he'd been completely blind in that eye, but now he could see his mother. The pain dissipated, so... Afterwards, his mother brought him to the ophthalmologist, the one he had been seeing. The doc ran some extensive tests and said, there's no structural change in the eye. I'm not aware of any change in the eye. And he said he had no medical explanation for what had happened. Well, there isn't a medical explanation. There's a God explanation. And trust me, God has received much, much attention for that unusual blessing. That must have been some sermon. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Number four. Number four is praying that is answered no. 
praying that is answered no. 2 Samuel 12 is where David prayed that his newborn child, a product of his adulterous um, relations with Bathsheba, his newborn child, his son, would recover from its severe illness. He prayed, he fasted, he begged God to heal his child, and God said no, no. That rejected prayer, though, got his attention. So much so, after he was told the child had just died, he got up from the ground where he had been, he bathed, changed his clothes, put on lotions, and went to the house of the Lord and worshipped God. God got his attention. Number five is extreme circumstances. Sometimes God uses extreme circumstances and situations to get our attention. In Exodus 3, God used a burning bush that wouldn't consume a burning bush to get Moses' attention. That's pretty extreme. In John MacArthur's case, it was a car crash God used to get his attention and issue him a divine calling. He was a college sophomore. He had been resisting God's call to become a, a preacher. He'd been resisting. Then as a passenger in a car, going more than 70 miles per hour, he was thrown out of that vehicle and skidded on his backside more than 100 feet down the pavement. He received serious road rash, third degree, third degree friction burns over much of his body. That's extreme. His injuries were so severe, he spent three months in the hospital recovering, but God got his attention. And he left that hospital determined to do what God had been calling him to do. He has pastored the same church, Grace Church, 51 plus years. His teaching is in so much demand that more than 2 million of his sermons are downloaded from his website each month. And in addition, he has authored more than 150 books. Because God used extreme circumstances to get his attention. Number six is a personal loss. Personal loss. Job chapter 1. Job had it all. And then Job lost it all. And through that loss, God got all his attention. I want to be sensitive enough to God. He doesn't have to knock me upside the head to get my attention. Number seven is divine, a divine interruption divine interruption. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had operated under the illusion that he was in charge, but he soon found out he wasn't. And God used this interruption to convince him of that. This is where we are in this narrative. Nebuchadnezzar has been cruising along. Things were good. No political unrest. The economy was booming. There was peace throughout the empire. His popularity ratings were at an all-time high. He had conquered more territories and countries. He had the best and finest possessions. He had achieved his dream of being the most powerful monarch to date. And then, then, all of a sudden, there was this nightmarish dream that prophesied his demise where Daniel predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would lose both his throne and his mind. He would be considered clinically insane for seven years. 
that constituted a serious interruption. And that was all of God's doing. Remember something. Divine interruptions find us. We don't find them. And God sometimes causes interruptions to get our attention. A second thing about divine interruptions is most people are control freaks. Most people are control freaks. Most people don't want to admit to that, but we are. How do we know? That is evidenced in how we respond to interruptions. Quote, accidents happen. People inconvenience us. Traffic causes us to be late. Unexpected illnesses change our plans. Finances are tight and we don't need an additional expense and then a a major appliance breaks down. Our company announces an unexpected reorganization and we're laid off. There's a sudden downturn in the stock market and our 401k starts to tank. We all experience these things. But the problem is we most often react to those interruptions in frustration and anger. Often we react similar to a child. We want to stomp our feet and scream, it's not fair. It's just not fair. We have accepted this illusion that life is supposed to be fair. And sometimes we even schedule pity parties. These are all inappropriate reactions to divine interruptions. And it's because we are control freaks. We want to be in control of our circumstances at all times because we want to feel secure. The problem is we are searching for security in something other than God, and that's idolatrous. How much has to happen to us before we understand that we aren't in control? Third, divine interruptions are not to be seen as intrusions on our plans but as opportunities for us to accept God's plan. Opportunities for us to accept God's plan. Matthew 14. This text records the unwarranted, illegal, and brutal execution of John the Baptist. Remember, John was the public relations person for Jesus, sort of his advanced man. Verse 10. So he, this is Herod. Antipas, Herod Antipas sent and had John, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, beheaded in prison. Verse 11, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, Salome is the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Her mother is Herodias. Herodias hated John. She hated him because he called out her adulterous marriage. And she wanted him dead. And she got that wish. And so John is beheaded. And his head is brought out on a platter and given to Salome. And Salome brought that head on that platter to her mother. That's sick stuff. That is really sick stuff. Verse 12. Then the disciples came and took away the body. Meaning the body minus the head and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Verse 13, when Jesus heard it, meaning when Jesus heard about John's execution, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. 
One more time. He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. How great is this multitude? If we read on, according to verse 21, there were some 5,000 men. 5,000 men besides women and children. 5,000 men plus 5,000 women plus two children per set of parents. So there were probably in excess of 20,000 people in this multitude. Notice, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus heard that John the Baptist, his friend and partner, had been executed and he was saddened. And he wanted to be alone. That is a normal human response. He received permission to use someone's boat and went to a deserted place. A deserted place means a secluded location where there weren't people, where he could be alone. Jesus wanted to be alone so he could grieve. And that would be a normal human response to losing a close friend. Someone leaked out where Jesus had vanished to and told some others that then told some others that then told some others until thousands and thousands came to see Jesus in that deserted place. He had wanted to be alone so he could grieve. But now those plans and that intention was interrupted. This is an interruption. Did Jesus act frustrated and irritated? Was he angered because thousands of people had come to see him? No. Instead of focusing on himself and what he had wanted, he turned to this multitude and focused on them. He was moved with compassion for them, and he acted on that compassion and started ministering. Notice he started healing the sick. Interruptions have a negative connotation because interruptions are convenient. But sometimes God permits us to be interrupted, as happened to Jesus, so we can be part of something greater. I've never shared this in public before. Some nine plus years ago, we experienced a significant interruption that God used to push us toward accepting His plan. We were still pastoring in California. We were in the Bay Area. And the invitation to candidate here had been extended to us. But we were struggling about that decision. It was one of the most difficult decisions we have ever, ever faced. We had a strong feeling and conviction that God wanted us to exit the socialist state of California. Uh, We didn't want to die and be buried in that God-forsaken place. So... (laughs) But we weren't certain, we weren't certain if this is where we should be, since we had never before ministered in such a small demographic. We were accustomed to crowded suburbia, almost urban regions, where there were more actual people than livestock. I mean, that's where we were. (laughs) This town is so small, I still get claustrophobic. Anyway. We almost never had time off. 
We never have. Never have. Our entire uh, ministry, never, and still don't. Um, but we, uh, we scheduled an actual vacation. I say that most people are shocked. It was an actual vacation to New York City. And it was focused around seeing my brother perform at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, I had seen him perform in different operas. Uh, Salt Lake City was the first. Portland, Tampa, San Francisco, on and on. But we'd never seen him perform at the Met. The Metropolitan Opera is the largest and most famous um, opera house on the North American continent. Um, so we had, we had scheduled a vacation to go see him perform. He was going to compass the tickets, and that was significant because operas, especially good seats, uh, can be extremely expensive. We also had close friends in our congregation whose parents um, resided on Long Island and had begged us to stay with them, saving us hundreds of dollars on motel costs because it's so expensive in New York City. And more than the lodging, though, the, the burlesque uh, were going to act as our tour guides into New York City. Uh, Henry Burlath was a chaplain uh, with the New York City Fire Department. He officiated at 51 different funerals of firefighters after 9-11. And these people were great people. We knew them uh, from all their visits out to the West Coast, and uh, we were excited to stay with them. In addition, uh, Susan Warno um, had given us, she'll be here second service, had given us companion passes on United Airlines since she was a United International flight attendant for more than 31 years. So we were saving hundreds more on airfare. This, this plan had morphed into an extremely doable and affordable trip. And since we'd never been to New York before, we were excited. About 7 a.m. on a Monday morning, we'd gotten all our luggage together. Not we. She had gotten all our luggage together. <laughs> Truth time. And we were on board an electric train called BART, B-A-R-T, Bay, Bay Area Rapid Transit. And we were headed for San Francisco International Airport en route to New York City. Now listen to this, and this is not an exaggeration. She can confirm this. We were literally on BART, no more than 15 minutes from our destination. And I received a call on my cell phone from this friend in our congregation. As soon as I heard his voice, I could hear he was troubled. He said, I feel terrible about this. But my aunt, his mother's sister, died unexpectedly last night. All our relatives are coming in for the funeral service, and my parents are going to be inundated with house guests and with all the arrangements, and there just won't be room for you guys, and they won't be able to take you into the city. And my parents feel so bad about this and want you to come another time. That, was a, that last minute announcement was a huge interruption in our plans. I said to him, we, we completely understand. This was unforeseen. I'm so grateful you caught us before we boarded the plane. But please tell your parents not to feel bad. We understand. Things happen outside our control, and it's okay. Maybe we can come another time. Uh, for the record, we've never made it to New York City. 
and it's okay. The mayor's a Marxist. (laughs) The governor should be in prison. It's okay. So in just a matter of minutes after that call, both we and our luggage arrived at San Francisco uh, International Airport. So we just went inside the airport, got off BART, went inside the airport and just sat down. We were in a semi-state of shock. We weren't upset. Uh, We weren't angered about what had happened. But we were questioning, what just happened here? I mean, what happened? Now a huge monkey wrench has just been thrown into our plans. So I said to Hope, I said, it it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem God wants us going to New York. She agreed. So she called Susan and told her what happened since we had those passes. Susan says, then use the passes and go somewhere else. Go to Hawaii. Well, we didn't want to go to Hawaii. And that's too expensive. And we said, it's okay. We can figure something else out. So we got back on BART, retraced our steps, returned to our home, then put the luggage in our car, and get this, drove to Reno and checked into the Silver Legacy. (laughs) Reno, New York City. I mean, what's the difference? It's the same thing. Six in one, half dozen in the other. I mean, I had the time off, although I, we would return and I would preach the next Sunday. We had never spent extensive time in Nevada. For the next 48 hours or more, we crisscrossed this entire region. We weren't rushed. There were no deadlines to meet. There were no appointments to meet with people. Just us and God. And we crisscrossed this region. And God used that excursion to bring us even closer to the ultimate conclusion that we were meant to be here. It wasn't long after that that God solidified that decision and we moved here. I don't know about you, but we're grateful for that divine interruption. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are God. You're the God of this universe. We forget that sometimes, the way we act and react toward things that happen. I'm certain that Satan has injected interruptions, but even those times he has interrupted us, you have permitted it, and you permitted it for our good, and we should remember that. But so often interruption happens so that we can refocus our attention on you there's something you want us to know and understand something you want us to do so God I pray that we'll look at interruptions different after this morning Nebuchadnezzar's life was turned upside down big time huge interruption probably none of us will have anything that dramatic happen but God help us to understand that you are in absolute control And all that happens to us is either caused by you directly or permitted by you indirectly. But it's always for your glory. And it's always for our ultimate good. Help us to trust you for that. I thank you for this lesson and these lessons we're learning from Daniel. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.